Aloha. I'm Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Thursday, December 7th, day two of our end-of-the-year membership campaign. A one-year diary written by a World War II veteran is making its way across the Pacific on this 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. We'll hear the story behind its discovery and what it details inside. We get an update on the Honolulu Marathon happening this weekend. Our post-pandemic economies in the Pacific recovering enough for more runners from Asia to participate. And we hanaho a conversation about Lahaina's architectural history. We hear about a program from the 1960s that may be able to restore the historical buildings that we lost. Remembrance ceremonies are being held on this, the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And today we have a story of how the diary of a young Navy man is making its way across the Pacific some eight decades later. Joseph Safa was stationed on a destroyer based at Pearl Harbor in 1941. His family only recently discovered his journal. The original diary is in a museum in his hometown of St. Louis, but a copy is headed to Hawaii in hopes it may be considered as part of the record for the Pearl Harbor National Memorial. The journal offers a glimpse of a 23-year-old sailor's life leading up to the attack. His nephew, Dennis Safa, reached out after hearing a recent story that we did on the conversation about the retirement of National Park historian Daniel Martinez. Safa wanted to get a copy to Martinez. Here's Safa talking about his Uncle Joe. His original diary was becoming a little faded, a little fragile, and to me it seemed so valuable that I met with the curator at the Missouri Historical Society and talked to him a little bit about it and showed him the actual diary. And he said, you know, that he felt that that would be a good addition to their collection, but that he would need to review it and discuss it with several other members and have it reviewed by the committee that accepts that. And it was like a 10-month process. And then in October, I got an email that they really would like to keep the original diary. So that original diary is now at the Missouri, at their archives and library in St. Louis, near Washington University, across from Forest Park. And they're going to preserve it as as they know how, you know, in a special case with humidity and light control. And hopefully, eventually, it will be digitalized. You know, it might take a while, but then it would be accessible to anyone. So what I did was condense the diary, edit it, made it readable, and ended up printing about 100 copies. I was going to just print 30, mainly for my close relatives. But honestly, once you print 30, it doesn't really cost much more to print 100. You know what I mean? It's just you're paying for the paper, basically. And, you know, for someone like you or Mr. Martinez or anyone at the Harbor Memorial who would have an interest, I can't think of a better place. I'd be very happy to give them copies. Well, Why don't you share with our listeners a little bit of what you learned about your uncle? I am now 74. My uncle Joe was born in 1917, and I was very close to him. He he lived not far from us. He never married. He was so nice to me, and we went camping and fishing and to ball games, and so I knew him very well. He died early in 1984, so he was about 67. And he had never mentioned in all that time, he knew how interested I was in history and, you know, my interest in school and never once mentioned to me that he was at Pearl Harbor. And then this diary was discovered after his death among his possessions. 
and all of us in the family were, were very amazed by it. But it looks like what happened in 1940, in December or October, actually, of 1940 in St. Louis, my Uncle Joe, my dad's older brother, and his brother Tom, and his good friend from high school, a man named Jim Graffina, joined the Naval Reserves in St. Louis. And now why there was a Naval Reserve in St. Louis or why they would join, I have no idea. I mean, they had never seen the ocean. There may have been a connection through family and even why they would join it. it it's kind of neat to speculate. They were all young. They weren't married. It was the end of the Depression. My sense is that maybe they thought they could make a couple bucks a month and go to a couple meetings and in a way it would be kind of fun for them. So that was October of 1940. December, mid-December of 1940, they received a letter from the Navy calling them up to active duty. And so they left St. Louis on a train from Union Station, which was kind of one of the big transportation centers in America at that time. On December 17th of 1940, train ride to San Diego, then a, a week or so in San Diego at the Naval Camp there, and then boarded the Lexington, the USS Lexington, historic storied aircraft carrier, actually the first aircraft carrier that was sunk by the Japanese in World War II was sunk in May of 42 at the Battle of the Coral Sea. But in any event, they rode from San Diego to Honolulu, Pearl Harbor, on the Lexington. And they, along with some of the other members of that St. Louis Naval Reserve Group, were assigned to a destroyer, the USS Chu, C-H-E-W, named after a Revolutionary War hero. So by the time they were in Honolulu, it was late January of 1941, and they served on the destroyer, the Chu, for the remainder of that year. And so my uncle made a pretty detailed diary of every day from the day he left, December 17th of 1940, through December 16th of 1941. So I wouldn't say that it's terribly exciting. And that's part of the message that I got from it, that these guys were working hard on a destroyer, mastering all the things that they had to know for naval warfare, drilling and training, kind of routine, enjoying their time off in beautiful Honolulu, you know, a little golf, a little softball, touch football, spending time going to the show at the uh, Army-Navy YMCA. That was a big treat if you got to spend the night there in Honolulu. And then the world changed on December 7th. You know, so again, it went from this idyllic life, this routine life in the Navy, in beautiful Hawaii, to absolute hell, you know, in the blink of an eye. What can you share with us? Like, what did he, what did he write about uh, his experience there during the attack? He wrote a very detailed diary where he would tell you what he had for breakfast. And today we did a big load of laundry and how we did it, artillery practice, very detailed. December 7th is not very detailed. So December 6th, Saturday before the attack, is the only day of the whole year where there are absolutely no entries in the diary. I can tell by what he was, he was, uh, he was a radio man. He was on call Friday night. He had Liberty Saturday. And I know that on the morning of the attack, he was in the Army-Navy YMCA in Honolulu. So I suspect he had duty Saturday morning, had liberty the rest of the weekend, went into Honolulu. And he says in his diary that he went to Mass that morning, about quarter to eight, was getting dressed, 
when he heard bombs. And actually, when you look at the records, it was probably five to eight when the initial Japanese uh, attack, the first wave occurred. And he was able to get a ride, a cab ride, to the harbor, which was, you know, which was less than a 10-minute ride. And when he got there, he talks about the Japanese planes coming in so low and machine gunning. He said, I'd have to run 10 feet and dive, run 10 feet and dive. And then by 5 to 9, that first wave had ended. So he was trying to report to his destroyer, the Chu, which was already underway. It, its duty that day was to protect the harbor inlet from submarines. You know, So the, the destroyers in those days had deck guns and torpedoes and depth charges. So after the attack, and actually the Chu was one of the few ships, U.S. ships, that was in the plus column that day. They shot down two Japanese planes, but then they were underway to the harbor entrance, basically looking for submarines. There were several mini submarines that were, were sunk that day. So my Uncle Joe was unable to report to his ship. And then there's kind of a blank. He said he reported to the USS Schley, S-C-H-L-E-Y, another destroyer, which is mentioned often in his diary. They had maneuvered together and drilled together. But the Schley was in the Navy Yard at Pearl Harbor undergoing an upgrade. So its deck guns were disarmed, and it was basically in dry dock being worked on. So this is about 9 o'clock when the second wave came in. And my uncle doesn't say much then until at by 6.30, he and a couple of his shipmates were able to be transported out to their boat, the Schley, by a small boat. And then he talks about that evening. So, you know, that's a big question. Here he was at the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he's so detailed about everything. Why no details there? And that is the mystery of this story. Uh, you were listening to a conversation that we had yesterday with Dennis Safa of St. Louis, Missouri. He was sharing the story of his Uncle Joe, who was on Liberty on the night of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. His diary gives a glimpse into the life of a 23-year-old sailor in the year leading up to that fateful day in 1941. The last entry in the journal ends one week after the attack. We don't know why. Perhaps recording the aftermath was too much to put down on paper. And that would be understandable with so many who died or who were injured that day. And so on this anniversary, we remember Joe Safa, one of many who were here in Honolulu on the day of the bombing 82 years ago. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash strong. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. 
An increase in visitors from Asia is giving our tourism industry a boost as we look to recover in this post-pandemic era. One good sign, the number of Japanese runners here for this weekend's Honolulu Marathon has almost doubled what it was last year. Jim Barahal is a longtime race director. We talked to him about the encouraging numbers on this 51st run of the People's Race. Last year, we had 5,200 from Japan across the three events this weekend, and this year we're about going to have about 9,600 when all the counting is done. So close to a 90% increase from last year. Well, that's terrific. I mean, I know you were very grateful that your uh, Japanese sponsors stuck it out with you, you know, just given the the climate of the yen and, and people were still kind of reluctant to uh, to travel. But that's good news. It's great news. And, um, of course, the Honolulu Marathon, to a large extent, economically, relies on our, our Japanese friends and, and participants and sponsors. And so... With COVID, uh, all of that was lost uh, pretty much. We lost almost all our participants from Japan and all that revenue. But fortunately, our sponsors, uh, particularly Japan Airlines, uh, stayed with us. And we're uh, definitely getting back to where we were. Not quite. It's going to probably take a couple more years. But uh, definitely almost doubling the Japanese participants from last year in a very difficult economic environment. Uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the exchange rate, which is extremely high. The, the yen is weak, and so that is definitely affecting things. Well, you know, last year was the 50th, and so 5,000, you know, was nothing to sneeze at, you know, g- given the 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 climate at the time. But, um, I mean, that's really a, a good that we're seeing then a, a comeback. Yeah, definitely a comeback. The last full year pre-COVID 2019, we had a little over 15,000 from Japan. So we're approaching two-thirds of the way back, which I think is good. I mean, what I see the reports for tourism in general here from Japan is about 40% of the way back. I see different numbers, but that seems to be about it, 40%. And so we're running about two-thirds. So uh, like I say, we're beating the S&P 500 in terms of, you know, we're we're running ahead of tourism as a whole. So we're not just riding a, a slow increase in tourism from Japan. We're actually ahead of that, which I think is encouraging, certainly for us. But I think a good sign for Japan tourism to Hawaii in general that more people are willing to come back, I think, if there's a special event or something they really want to do. Uh, so I think that hopefully this is a harbinger of, of things to come. We think tourism is important, and we think Japanese tourism is incredibly important uh, from an economic point of view and the fact that they're great visitors. They respect the land. They respect the culture. They respect the people of Hawaii. You couldn't have a better group of visitors. So we're just uh, so thrilled that that has come back this far for us, and hopefully that'll continue for tourism as a whole. What kind of a snapshot can you give us just on uh, runners that are, say, coming from the mainland? It's very strong, actually. We have over 5,000 people from the mainland and, and um, another 1,500 international runners, non-Japanese. So our numbers from the mainland are, are, have actually increased from 2019, and other international markets are also coming back strong. So we're definitely on an upward trajectory. The Honolulu Marathon, is, it's still difficult because so much of our revenue was from Japanese sponsorships and Jap, uh, Japanese entries. As you might know, we we have variable pricing. Uh, we've always 
tried very hard to afford the local runners a comma Ina rate. And so the revenue that we get from the, the international runners and the mainland runners is greater than that from the Hawaii runners. And our entries in Japan and our sponsorships in Japan are in yen. All of our revenue in Japan is in yen. And our contracts with our sponsors are in yen. So the exchange rate, it's uh, it's tough right now, and it's also a moving target for us. So we have to try to decide when we want to uh, activate the revenue from the sponsorships, kind of kind of guessing as to what we think the yen is going to do. So it's created a difficult financial environment for us, but I think for everybody. But again, we're definitely on an upward trajectory. And uh, what are the total number of entries this year? Right now, we're just a little over 28,000 entries. As we speak, the the expo and the late entries will open today, and we think we'll get another 1,000 entries approximately. So we're looking at about 29,000 entries across the three events, the Honolulu Marathon on Sunday, the Start to Park 10K, which starts with the marathon, and the Kalakaua Mary Mile on Saturday. And the reason that I, I give you the numbers across all three platforms because really, from an event point of view and from a Hawaii economic impact point of view, those are all people coming here uh, to Hawaii to participate in the Hanu Marathon weekend. So actually, from an economic impact point of view from uh, the city and the state, whether someone is doing the mile or the marathon, it's pretty much the same. They're coming here. They're going to stay in a hotel. They're going to spend money. From an event point of view, the, uh, those events, we charge less money for those events. So the economics of that are not quite as favorable for us. But from a, a global perspective on those folks, uh, they're just as important. And it's enabled us to, to continue to, to not only stay in business, but we think that's where a lot of our growth is going to come from because not everybody can or wants to run a marathon, but the opportunity to come here and, and perhaps even with family members or friends and do a 10K or even a mile I think is very appealing. And that's going to help us to really grow here in the next few years. Well, my marathon days are over, but I just remember taking part in the 10K after the the worst of the pandemic, and it was just an incredible feeling coming through Waikiki again toward the end, just knowing the challenges that our economic engine had been through. And it was really, really an amazing feeling just to see it come back. That was exhilarating in um, 2021 when... We did put on the marathon, really in conjunction with Mayor Blangiardi. Uh, he really wanted us to do it, and we really wanted to do it. And without his encouragement and support, it wouldn't have happened. And I'm really glad to hear your story about being on that road that day, because we as organizers really felt that the exhilaration and the sense that, hey, things are beginning to open up and, and we'll get back to normal. So that was an amazing experience. Uh for us as organizers as well as the participants. Yeah, it, I'll never forget that. You know, it truly just it was a, a bit of relief and just, you know, knowing all the people that we lost during the pandemic, but knowing that, uh, you know, we can bounce back. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so that was an amazing um, thing. And that's the Start to Park 10K, which starts with the marathon. I mean, we've heard from so many people that it, it is exhilarating because it gets people who are going to do a 10K, they get to start with a, a major marathon. It's an amazing experience with the fireworks and the whole scene out there. 
Yes, it truly is. Well, Dr. Jim Barrahall, thank you for all you do. Thank you for uh, uh, continuing to put on a wonderful event. And uh, we hope that it's a safe one for uh, all the participants again this year. Yeah, thank you. And we're looking forward to a great event on Sunday. And that was Jim Barrahall talking to us about the snapshot of the 51st Honolulu Marathon that will be held this Sunday, December 10th. And remember, it's not too late to sign up at the Expo today for the uh, Merry Mile or the 10K or the Marathon. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply with a mission to provide fresh water to the people of Oahu, committed to conserving and protecting Oahu's water resources since 1929. Boardofwatersupply.com. Support for HPR comes from Maui Ocean Center in Ma'alaya, committed to community, culture, and conservation, offering opportunities to experience Hawaii's marine ecosystem. Learn more at MauiOceanCenter.com. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the risk of invasive species that Maui faces as it tries to recover from the wildfires. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Good morning. So we're talking about uh, coconut rhinoceros beetle, right? The possible threat of that spread to that island? Yes. Well, coconut rhinoceros beetle, little fire ants, and um, any new invasive species that's inevitably going to arrive in Hawaii um, could have a pretty concerning effect on Maui as it recovers from the August State wildfires. And it's because they're bringing in compost, apparently, to that island to help uh, in the replanting. Yes. So Maui County doesn't actually have its own government-run composting facility, so it relies on other islands, predominantly Oahu. Um, But, you know, on Oahu, coconut rhinoceros beetle has been here the longest. Um, In fact, it was only this year that, uh, since May, that Maui, Kauai, and Big Island um, had their first detections of coconut rhinoceros beetle. So this kind of raises concerns, of course, because if you're relying on your compost and mulch from um, Oahu coming into Maui to help the recovery efforts, um, stabilise soils, start planting um, in affected watersheds, particularly upcountry Maui, it's going to be a concern because that might just be harbouring those, those plant products, those organic materials might be harbouring Uh, coconut rhinoceros beetle larvae they could be harboring little fire ants they could be harboring goodness knows how many different kind of um, pests that have been identified already as a problem or not been identified yet uh, um, just an uh, issue waiting to arise yeah we don't want those hitchhikers but you know I remember when when we had kind of a ban right here on Oahu where they didn't want you to move mulch or compost from you know, an infected area uh, unknowingly, you know, from one side of the island to the other. So, yeah, we, we're we going to have to really be careful. 
Mm, absolutely. And, and the Department of Agriculture has kind of recognised this. The Invasive Species Councils statewide have recognised this. And there is a rulemaking process underway to give the Department of Agriculture more power um, to regulate, particularly the nursery industry, um, which, you know, uh, sells plants and organic materials. So th- there's some interim rules being put in place and uh, at the beginning of next year. There is that interim rule for coconut rhinoceros beetle already that's still in place. But there's a permanent rule which will really kind of cover the entire spectrum of all invasive species, whether that's coconut rhinoceros beetle or um, that might be little fire ants. But, you know, the the kind of basis of this and a lot of the argument for controlling invasive species better and increasing funding for biosecurity really comes down to it's like pay now or you're really going to have to pay for it later. And by pay for it later, it means you're going to have to pay a lot more. Um, the effects of little fire ant alone on Big Island uh, is estimated to cost the, the island $200 million annually. And then if you look at cokey frogs on the same island, it's $7.6 million annually. But then you're talking about coconut rhinoceros beetle and little fire ants on a statewide level, you can imagine that that number ticks up pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, these are pretty terrible pests. And, uh, uh, you know, the fact that they are spreading and we're just finding more uh, more cases of this is not a good thing. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as Maui moves forward in its recovery efforts, whether that's in the landscape of landscapes of upcountry, Maui, but also in rebuilding Lahaina, which, of course, you know, that that's a couple of years away, apparently. Um, but these species don't just move with organic material. You know, little fire ants have been found on cars. Um, and, you know, uh, there, there have just been so many cases where um, these invasive species are hitchhiking in other ways. It's not just in soil. So, you know, it could be on building materials. And, of course, Lahaina um, is going to have to rebuild at some point fairly soon. And that's going to be a concern because, of course, that might just really be adding to the um, adding to the problem going right. forward. We don't need another environmental disaster over there. But thank you so much, Thomas. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, that was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. Read the full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way and the 2023 Holiday Wish List, connecting businesses and individuals to the needs of participating United Way agencies across the state. More at auw.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. Many of the historic buildings lost in Lahaina were architectural emblems that marked the popular or common building styles of the time. 
And just as Hawaii is a melting pot of ethnicities, Lahaina was a melting pot of several architectural styles. The Conversations Russell Subiona was curious about the influences on the buildings in the town. He reached out to William Chapman, the dean of the University of Hawaii's School of Architecture, back in September to get a better understanding of Lahaina's architectural history. I first encountered William Chapman's name while reading an article published by the University of Hawaii News that discussed whether the blueprints existed to rebuild Lahaina's historic buildings. While that was what hooked me, what I was really interested in was whether all the different architectural styles brought to West Maui over the years resulted in a distinct Lahaina style. Think about it. You have the Baldwin home, which mirrored the homes in New England, You have the Wohing Museum, built with a very strong Asian influence, and all the shops along Front Street. They all reminded me of the plantation-style buildings I grew up with on the Big Island. I mean, you find parallels in a number of other plantation towns, even uh, Haleiwa, right, has a lot of similarities. So uh, I would say, you know, a lot of it's what I think people in the architectural history business would call a stylistic, it's more of a kind of vernacular architecture, a kind of response to place. It's kind of late vernacular. I would roughly say that the earliest buildings in Lahaina were, if you wanted to give it a stylistic name, I would say a form of Georgian architecture, which dominated East Coast construction and much of the West, actually, until well into the 19th century. So the answer as to whether a distinct Lahaina architectural style emerged from all of the outside architectural influences? Not really, says Chapman. But the various styles of buildings is a big part of what made Lahaina unique. Take the Pioneer Inn, for example. Pioneer Inn, of course, is a much later building, sort of the third period of the significance of Lahaina. Let me say something more about Pioneer Inn. It became a kind of, I think, a signature for the town. It was built in 1901, and as you know, the Pioneer Inn was really named after the Pioneer Mill, and that was the beginning of the sugar industry in West Maui. In fact, almost all the buildings that you see in your typical photograph of Front Street or other parts of Lahaina were, in fact, from that plantation era, and they false front kind of architecture that you'd call kind of Italianate. Sort of like what you saw when watch as a kid or something watching Gunsmoke. Also among the memorable and interesting structures, the Baldwin Home, which up until the fire was the oldest house still standing on Maui. And right next to it, its neighbor, the Siemens Hospital. Baldwin House was another coral block building. It dates to the 1830s, early 1830s, I think 33 to 1834. It was a coral block building that was covered with stucco. I think there was brick included in its construction as well. Back in the 60s, when it was first restored by the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, it was basically gutted at that time and then rebuilt from within. It was a two-story building, and then there was a one-story wing running to the north. Next to that was the Naval Hospital or Siemens Hospital. Also a masonry building, two stories, kind of more in a style that you'd probably call Monterey style, more like what you found in early U.S. settlements in California, kind of a combination of things Hispanic in a way and things East Coast. So it it featured a second-story gallery or lanai, 
and something like you would actually see in parts of California. Many of Lahaina's historic buildings that were lost were converted into museums and overseen by the Lahaina Restoration Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the history of Lahaina. And while many of them have partially or completely burned down, there remains a glimmer of hope. Detailed drawings of many of Lahaina's historic buildings were made by architects and students in the 1960s and 70s. A program that was created by the National Park Service in 1933 called the Historic American Building Record, a survey rather, HABS. The HABS program, they went around and they did a lot of drawings, often of buildings that were on their last legs. And so I think they they probably well over half of the buildings in the Library Congress collection. One of the things they always said when they maybe made their justification to Congress is that in the event of a catastrophe, these drawings would provide the opportunity for reconstruction based on their precision. So I think there's probably enough actual material there at Baldwin House, the courthouse, and perhaps some other buildings. I, I noticed a lot of standing walls for some of the commercial buildings to basically know what was there. The Habs drawings don't address all these buildings. The Pioneer Inn seems to have extensive photographs, but no drawings. The courthouse was drawn. Ale Aloha, which was once the community center for Hawailoa Church, that has been drawn. I think Baldwin House has drawings. So there are a number of drawings that would aid in their construction. I ended my call with Chapman by asking him about Lahaina's architectural future. Should these historic structures be rebuilt, or should there be more of a Hawaiian or modern influence? How do you design Lahaina's future without forgetting its past? You're going to have to think about how you're going to respond to all the different factions and interests. If we all come together and recognize that there's a little piece of all of Hawaii's history here, certainly the Hawaiian story itself, which is the substrata of all of it and continues to be a living part of that, or whether it's the dominant culture of plantation culture, which really created the kind of architecture that you see there and and looking at the names of people affected by the fire, uh, so many of the names are people connected to plantation labor of the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So that's part of their story, too. And you want to kind of have a place for all of these stories to be told. I'm kind of hoping that maybe Lahaina could bring together all these disparate aspects of our past and our present and create some sense of unity. And that was William Chapman, head of the University of Hawaii School of Architecture, talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about Lahaina's architectural history.